Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, Workforce and Diversity and Inclusion. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Jacques Podunu. Dr. Podunu is an instructor in surgery and cardiac surgery at Harvard Medical School at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He is a NIH-funded researcher and a staunch advocate in global health equity. We have a long winding conversation that discusses his origins being born in France, moving to Ghana where he attended medical school, and ultimately coming to the United States. He is passionate about taking his expertise and benefiting the global community with cardiac disease. Please enjoy this incredible episode. Welcome to another episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Today I have with me the incomparable Dr. Jacques Podudu. Dr. Kodudu, welcome. Do you mind if I call you Jacques? No, thanks. Yeah, please do. Well, thank you for joining us today. You know, I I always have a hard time keeping track of the hospital mergers and acquisitions in Boston. So are we uh, Leahy BIDMC or Leahy Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center? What are we today? So today we are Leahy Beth, well, Lehi Beth Israel Deaconess, which is Lehi BI, you know, BIDMC. So that's 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 the new name. And as you rightly mentioned, it's uh, the Lehi Health System and the Beth Israel Deaconess Health System have all merged into one one uh, big health system. I guess to compete with the other big health system, which is the Mass General Brigham, uh, which which used to be partners. So uh, it's amazing, you know, you're in a in a wonderful, rich environment in Boston with so many great healthcare leaders, not only in cardiothoracic surgery, but healthcare as a whole. And you first got there in 2013. Tell me about your practice. 
So uh, yeah, David. So thanks. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I I made a switch, or I made the trans. What I you know made a move from California. I used to practice in California, where I used to be mostly in, in the private practice realm. I was there for five years, and then made a move to Boston in 2010, primarily for two reasons. One was I was very much interested in the global health aspect of uh, cardiac surgery. And, and as we will discuss, you know, my background is originally from, from Africa. And so, you know, Boston was a great ecosystem for me to build the global health interest. And then secondly, I wanted to get back into the academic space, uh, a bit more of writing, a bit more of, you know, research. And, and I was very much also interested in one day getting NIH funded which was one of my big goals. Great. And we're going to touch a little bit about your, your interest in, in global health and, and global surgery, which is really a, an exploding aspect of cardiothoracic surgery today in, in regards to research and eliminating rural disparities, especially as we're taping this during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, those good. needs have been, high, have been highlighted. But you know, prior to coming to Boston and, and by way of California, you were born in Paris, France. And uh, tell me a little bit about your your upbringing there. Yes, so you know, I, I consider myself an international an international gentleman, right? So I was I was born in <laughs> I was born in France, uh, in Paris, to a, to a French mom and to a dad from Ghana. And, and interestingly, my, my dad's, you know, how did my dad get to France, you know, from, you know, from Ghana? And so it happened that during the Kwame Nkrumah days or towards when Ghana was getting its independence, uh, France and Ghana developed a relationship in which the then French government said, well, we're going to provide five scholarships for five bright young you know, students from Ghana to come in school in France. So my dad got a call one day, you know, that, hey, in about three or four days, you need to get yourself a passport picture visa and, and you know, you're heading to France for your studies in medicine. So that's how he headed up, you know, ended up being in France. And that's where he went to med school. He's a cardiologist, by the way. And so he met my mom, and uh, and and so here, yeah, I am. I was born in France. So we, I spent eight years in France, and then we moved back to Ghana, where my dad took up an academic appointment as a cardiologist and as Ghana's first cardiologist. So that's so, kind of the story. <laughs> so it's amazing. You know, what year did you did your dad and your family move back to Ghana? So we moved in 1970-71 was his first move to Ghana. He, you know, he stayed in France for I think 12 years. He went there in 58. And so we moved back to Ghana for in 71-72. And then we moved back to France in 74. And then came back in 76. So so it was a bit disjointed, but you know, but, so but yes. Your dad was Ghana's first cardiologist. That's right. Like, you know, and, and I think for many in our audience, you know, coming from the United States, that, that might be hard to wrap our heads around. You know, 
how is that possible and what type of sort of responsibility laid on your dad's shoulders in this environment? Well, David, you've rightly said it. It's, um, you know, in those days, it wasn't considered, you know, they, they, they wanted more primary care doctors, right? They wanted more primary care physicians. And so it wasn't, to subspecialize was a little bit out of the norm, right? We didn't need, you know, in those days, we didn't need subspecialists. We just needed primary care physicians. And, you know, Ghana's first medical school opened in 1968, 69. So it's not relatively old. So when he came back, you know, in fact, many people said, well, we don't really need cardiologists. We just need, you know, primary care physicians, right? So that was a bit out of the norm. And, you know, being the first obviously comes with a lot of, lot of responsibilities. And so, you know, everyone looks up to you, you know, when, when, when you're the first, you're supposed to set an example. But being the first also brings a lot of, you know, you, you have, you know, folks from other countries who want to come to Ghana to train under you. So he had a lot of that. He had a lot of, you know, he kept very good, you know, good touch with his professors in France. So he had also a lot of assistance from the French government in establishing, you know, cardiology in Ghana, as well as in other sub-Saharan African countries. So it was, I, I guess I would say it was, it was ultimately a good thing. And at 84, your dad is still practicing medicine. Yeah, I mean, he's as active as, as ever. And I don't know what I, I told you, but you know, I just got NIH funded and my dad is one of the co-PIs. So, <laughs> so both he and I, you know, busy working on research and, you know, clinical practice. So it's, it's actually a, an honor to be able to do that with, with your dad. That's great. And your, your mom spent many years in the French Foreign Service. So again, for our United States listeners, what, what does that mean, that, that role? Yeah, so I, I mean, I would liken it to being in the, you know, same like in the U.S. where you work in the foreign service, right? So you're involved in diplomacy, in, uh, you know, in, 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 in bringing the good, the good name of the U.S. to the world, right? So this would be the same, the same version where, you know, as a, as a diplomat, she, she represented the, you know, the French government and its values, uh, you know, in Ghana. So, yeah, so that's. I mean, that's the simplest way to, you know, to, to, to put it. But uh, yeah, so she, she worked for many years until she retired in the French uh, Foreign Service. So, you know, you could see how your dad's career as a cardiologist could shape your career, you know, as a cardiothoracic surgeon. But also in your house, you had a skilled diplomat. How did your mom's career and her approach to success within her career uh, help you navigating your professional life and the obstacles therein, that those, those di- diplomacy acumen? You know, mom's always special, as you know. And, you know, although I was, you know, my dad, you know, I looked up to my dad and he remains, you know, my biggest, you know, my biggest fan. It was my mom who actually, you know, she was behind me all, you know, every day, you know, with with the books, with school. So I'll say a lot of, you know, a lot of my shaping was was done by both parents. You know, my dad had a, I would say, a more laid back attitude, 
uh, it was my mom who was more of the, you know, the task, the taskmaster in the house. Mm. But yeah, I think I cannot, you know, overemphasize the importance of my my parents in uh, shaping who I am today. So it's 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 amazing to have two great parents where you learn from both of them, uh, and that's shaped a lot of my interest in again, in doing a lot of global health work. Um, when I see my dad, who I would emphasize that when he f- wanted to go back to Ghana, his then professor and mentor literally begged him to stay in France and take over his practice. But he was very focused on, you know, coming back to help. And I also have to give uh, a lot of credit to my mom, you know, f- for leaving her a life in France to follow my dad and we all moved to Ghana and we all made Ghana a new new home. Mm. Well, you can't get mad at your mom for being a taskmaster because she can always claim diplomatic immunity. (laughs) So, you know, you did your medical training at uh, med school at University of Ghana and here you are with two different worlds, you know, one European, Western European and one Sub-Saharan African. And you, you describe how your, your dad, you know, really kind of resisted that pull to go back to, to France to stay within Ghana. And, but you felt a pull to come to the United States. Why is that? Well, you know, my, my dad spent over 15 years in, in France, right? That's where he got his medical education. That's where he got his, uh, his training. Uh, and my dad was, a, you know, he loved classical music. You know, he was a Renaissance man. But, you know, he did go back. Uh, there was a lot of burden on him to go back and to help establish cardiology in Ghana. I was, you know, I've always been shaped by, you know, the fact that he, he put that as his overall, you know, priority uh, in terms of going back to help. Now, when I was in med school, uh, I think towards my, my fourth year of med school, we had the opportunity, each of us had the opportunity to spend three months doing an elective, which is kind of similar to here. Mm-hmm. And so I took this elective in, in the US, in, in Texas, Baylor, Baylor University Medical Center. And I spent three months there. I did a bit of cardiology, I did a bit of cardiac surgery, and then I went back to Ghana and I said, well, I wanted to go back and do my training in the U.S. I was really impressed by, by the, you know, what I saw when I came here. And so I made a decision that upon finishing my training in Ghana, I hopefully, uh, you know, will, will make the, uh, the trip overseas to get schooled here. Now, remember, my dad got educated in Europe. And so I chose to get my further education in the U.S. So that's that's how I made it over to the U.S. Now, over here, you started off at Johns Hopkins University and you, you know, talk fondly of such early mentors as Duke Cameron and others at, at Hopkins. How did what, what was the sort of transition like coming from outside the United States to a traditional Story programs like Johns Hopkins. Yeah, no, I think that's one area I want to kind of highlight a little bit because I think 
many of uh, our listeners, you know, come from diverse backgrounds, including some who probably trained outside the U.S. I came to Hopkins in 1996, and you know, remember this is the very early days of computers, Mac, and internet. You know, and coming from Ghana, you know, I had no no experience with with computers. I'd never you know typed a Word document. I'd never done a PowerPoint presentation. So here is here, that's one of the challenges, right? Coming into a place like Hopkins. And, and I remember the, the first night of call, I was told to make the list, you know, the famous list and, you know, place the patients where they're supposed to be and their medications and their room numbers and their labs. And, you know, a simple one page list took me more than two hours to, to accomplish. So here's one of the, one of the challenges of, <laughs> uh, you know, of, of having come from, from Ghana. A second challenge I think was I always every year I had to get my visa renewed. And you know, we don't give a lot of thoughts to it, but you know, the 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 headaches of having to go through that paperwork to get your immigration visa re- renewed with the possibility that it may not be renewed and that you may not continue your residence, I think was another you know big headache for me. But as, as you rightly mentioned, there were, you know, folks like Duke Cameron, uh, who was then the, the, the division chair of cardiac surgery, who was, had always been kind to me and, you know, had really, um, you know, mentored me in some way. So, I mean, there were folks like that that I could look up to. There's, there was, uh, the program director was then Keith Lillimore, who is now the chairman of surgery at, at Mass General, who was also yeah. a very supportive person in, in my Hopkins days. So I, I will say that there were some, some bright spots, but the experience obviously with, with especially also those days that we, we did not have the 80 hour work rule, right? So you could just do three days of call with no sleep. You know, those were challenging. Just, and I'm sure you went also through that same period. <laughs> oh, no, I, I had plenty of sleep when I was a, a resident and fellow. So I slept like a baby. Good for you. <laughs> MG. Still sleep like a baby. <laughs> yeah, so so those were the those were the days at, at, at Hopkins. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were interesting days, if, if 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 I may put it that way. Yeah. You know, I think it's 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 fascinating that you mentioned Dr. Cameron and Dr. Lillimo. And one common theme that we have on this podcast is sort of what I like to call that cross demographic mentorship where your mentor doesn't necessarily have to look like you or be from the same background as you. I mean, your background is so unique. It's almost impossible to have mentors that, that mirror your background as you progress through your career. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think I probably will say I did suffer from not having, you know, a mentor that had, you know, kind of my background that I could, you know, pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, you've, you were an immigrant, you were here, how did you do it? You know, so a lot of my learnings were kind of making those mistakes and, you know, picking yourself up and, you know, moving forward. Maybe, you know, I wish I had, you know, more folks like me that I could, you know, pick up their phone and ask, how do you, you know, navigate, 
you know, how do you navigate your visa situation, for example? When do you apply? When do you renew it? You know, things like that. So, so yeah, I mean, I think we need more, and, and that's what diversity is about, right? Is, you know, getting more people that look like you or who've been through you that through your experience to, to share that with you uh, for you to grow. So, yeah, so I, I would say I, I wish I had more of that, but, you know, we, we had other ways and means to, to get to that end. Uh, so as I, as I mentioned, people like Duke were, uh, even to this day, I mean, we, we, we meet sometimes two, every two or three months and have dinners and, you know, and, you know, we share certain experiences. So, so I think it's very important to have a mentor or to find someone. And as you mentioned, it doesn't need to exactly look like you, but, but having some of your experiences, I think also helps in terms of not making those mistakes, which perhaps uh, you don't need to go through those mistakes, right? To, to, if you can avoid it, uh, let me put it that way. Now uh, you uh, finished your general surgery at Loma Linda and went on to matriculate to the University of Illinois in Chicago for cardiothoracic surgery fellowship. Why cardiothoracic surgery for you? I mean, obviously your, your dad uh, is a cardiologist, but what, what about the specialty you, you had every single surgical specialty in front of you? Why, why CT? Well, I think the very early influence of my dad, you know, pushed me towards doing something with the heart. Let me put it this way. You know, from a very early age, uh, when I was in, I guess, high school to early med school, I was reading EKGs for my dad, right? And making some money on the side. But that was his way of influencing me, right? Because what he will do is he will give me the EKG strip and say, look, read it and interpret it. And if you got it right, then, you know, we, we kind of share a little bit of the, the money that came with that EKG read. And, and so I had my little piggy bank, uh, whatever you want to call it, right? And with monies from having read EKG. So I will say it was maybe a subconscious way of he influencing me into, into the field. And he also had a number of colleagues uh, whom he went to school with, like Carpentier. Carpentier was his classmate. And I got to meet him a number of times, you know, later on in life. But there were people like him, there were people like Cabral, who, you know, was a famous heart surgeon, whom, you know, those were folks who, you know, taught him or whom he went to school with. So there was a little bit of, you know, subconscious, you know, that's what I'm kind of, kind of going to do, right? I'm going to do something in the heart. Now, of course, I didn't want to do what my dad exactly did. So the, the, the rebellious way was to say, well, if you're a cardiologist, I'll do surgery, right? So, so that's, that, was, that was, you know, part of the interest in doing surgery. Although I will say that there was no guarantee that I was going to do it because if I wanted to come to the U.S., and as you, you and I well know, getting into a categorical spot in surgery is, is quite, uh, you know, it's quite difficult and, yeah. and even more difficult when you're an immigrant and you've not been to school here. So, so that's what I will say concerning, it was like, you know, like throwing a, a dart in the, you know, on the board and seeing where it lands. But here we are today. So it obviously worked out well. So we're going to touch base on that, the concept of the foreign medical graduate in cardiothoracic surgical training, but you completed your cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at University of Illinois. And there you are in Chicago. You've been in Baltimore. 
those are two large, big U.S. cities that have issues with health disparities. Did you see any similarities between the, the underserved communities there and sort of the challenges faced by sub-Saharan Africa in your experience of global health? And were there sort of initiatives that we do in global health surgery that perhaps we're not even think about doing or underutilized domestically in some of our underserved populations? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question, but that's a question that's on point. And I, I will say that the times are a bit different. Like currently, you know, because of what we've experienced with, uh, you know, with COVID-19 and, and, and with the George Floyd, you know, uh, you know story, there's been a lot of emphasis placed on addressing some of these health disparities and, and some of these um, issues around racism. But, you know, 15 years ago, that was not the same, you know, we were not hearing the same kind of emphasis. And so I would say growing up, I mean, going through my residency, of course, in Chicago and places like Baltimore, where there's a lot of, especially within the inner cities, where there's a lot of trauma and lots of issues with access to primary care services, access to, to, you know, to good surgical services, I could see that. And there is a similarity between that and sometimes even worse here in the U.S. than even places like in Africa, right? So in Africa, it's a little bit different in the sense that, well, we all don't have, but we will share what we have, right? So whereas here, there is really a lot, like there's a you go to certain places and there's an abundance of wealth, there's abundance of resources. But you go across the streets, two, two blocks, you know, and there's really nothing. So that's kind of, that hit me a lot. And, 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 and I think it was a little tough, you know, to see. But on the other hand, to, you know, this, this always keeps coming back. There's a big, big, big difference between the way the, you know, Africans who've emigrated to the U.S., you know, so for folks like us, when we come to the U.S., we understand that there was really nothing back home, like electricity is a problem, water is a problem, sometimes there's no electricity, there's no, there's no water. So you come to a place like the U.S., I remember when, when we came, when I came here, and I went to the library, and all the books were there, like, you know, I didn't have to photocopy any book, I didn't have to like borrow my 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 colleague's book and you know go to the photocopier machine. I mean the books were there, there's light. And so in our minds, wow, there's light, there's books, there's free food. All you need to do is just study, right? So there's a different mindset between the African immigrants and then perhaps you know the African American who's been born here and who's grown up seeing all these disparities and all this racism and having to grasp with that. So those are the two big differences. That that's the way I like to categorize those two boxes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, sort of that juxtaposition. You know, I, I kind of think of sort of my patient population where, you know, I've, many of us have, have transitioned from, say, open thoracotomy for lung resection to minimally invasive bats or robotic lung resection. And I remember doing a, um, a focus group on my patients in regards to what outcomes are most important to them after lung cancer surgery. 
And the big topic that came up was pain. And many of those individuals in the focus group had undergone minimally invasive surgery. And, you know, as surgeons, we pat ourselves on the back about we no, no longer doing cutting our patients in half to take out their lobes. And we're saving them uh, immensely on pain experience um, by not doing a thoracotomy. But the big, biggest complaint were from those patients who undergone minimally invasive surgery was pain. And the issue was that they had no point of reference of a thoracotomy. Their entire experience was the pain associated with minimally invasive surgery, and that pain was relevant to them. It's similar to sort of those two experiences. You know, an immigrant coming from another country would say, well, you have all these resources here. You should see where I, I come from. And then people who are from here are, are saying, well, in the context of the United States, our resources are extremely poor while literally across the street, you have someone who has anything that they want based on their socioeconomic, in many cases, socioeconomic birth. So it's a, a, fa a fascinating juxtaposition of experiences within this country. And now, three years as of three years, you are a citizen of this country. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's an honor. It's, uh, it's been a long time a long time coming, but it's, 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 you know, it's a great place. It's a great country. You know, my, my kids are all born here. My wife is also from U.S. citizen. So uh, it, it's definitely an honor to be one. And with that, you were eligible to apply for NIH funding and you have received an NIH award. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, no, it's as, as I mentioned in my, in, in my early comments, I think, you know, being a scientist, NIH-funded scientist, I think it's, it's definitely something that I'd, as, I mean, I'd aspired to, but I was not eligible because of my immigration status. And so to, to get to that point, obviously, required being a U.S. citizen or at least having a permanent residency. Um, and then once that was done, the next thing was, okay, uh, you know, as, as you and I know, you need a lot of mentorship to figure out what the research question that you, you, you want to, to address. It, it always helps when you have someone who's previously been funded or whom you can tag on to, to help you mentor you through that process. And, but my interests again, were very much focused on global cardiac surgery. And as you know, there's not a lot of let me put it this way, funded initiatives around global surgery. Uh, it's beginning to happen with the NIH Fogarty Institute, but it's really not there yet. So that was one of my other challenges, was how to craft out global cardiac surgery research question and then get it funded. So that, that was a lot of, you know, I, I didn't get it on the first go. I, I applied, I think, two years ago. And I think if it wasn't discussed, I think the first time wasn't discussed. Then luckily the second time around, it got funded. So the, the um, you know, so for anyone who is trying to apply for NIH funding or for any kind of uh, grants funding, I don't think you should get too disappointed if you don't get funded the first time. You just need to keep trying and, and, and hopefully something good will come out of it. So, so that's how I ended up getting funded with, with this initiative, which I'm, uh, which is a five-year funded grant to do uh, work in Ghana, my home country. So 
I'm really excited about that. And that has spurred me to keep going and applying for more funding to focus on Global Kayak Series. So really excited about this opportunity. And what is your project? So my project is we're trying to leverage digital health tools to improve the blood pressure. You know, hypertension affects about 38% of folks in Ghana. And I'm sure it's a about kind of similar in the US. And so what we're trying to do is to use an M Health platform whereby they can we can monitor their blood pressure, we can you know send them notifications about their medications, uh, we can advise them about their diet. And the outcomes will be if we are able to reduce their, you know, their systolic blood pressure by about 10 to 15 points over a period of time. So we initially going to start with uh, implement, I mean, with the feasibility phase, which is a two-year phase. And then hopefully, based on the findings from the two-year phase, implement a pilot over three years for the, uh, to complete a five-year phase. So, uh, so it will be a five-year a five-year study period. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, uh, we recently had Dr. Valerie Roosh on this podcast, and she talked about her partnership with the American College of Surgeons and Surgical Colleagues in Rwanda for a global health partnership there. When you look at sort of our, our large surgical organizations, there has been traditionally partnerships with European surgical groups, Asian continental surgical groups, and now a little bit more collaboration with South American surgical groups. If you could provide sort of a blueprint or a menu for a large organization such as the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, what type of collaborations would you recommend for organizations such as the SDS? Yeah, I mean, I, I, David, it is a great question. And I think that we've seen a lot of partnerships with all the other continents. The only partnership at the society level, which is to me maybe missing, is a bit of around Africa, partnerships around you know, societies with Africa. There are a number of collaborations where you know, individuals like myself or Valerie Rush or a couple of other colleagues have maybe an institutional partnership with, with a particular university, whether it's through a grant process or through some kind of collaboration. But I think that we are missing an opportunity as a society to partner with partner institutions or partner societies in Africa. Remember that rheumatic heart disease is the number one cardiovascular related surgical disease in the world. It's it's more than ischemic heart disease is more than all the other cardiac conditions that we treat in the West. Rheumatic heart disease is by far the largest, but it's also by far the least funded and the least, what we call the neglected of the neglected, right? So for me, this has been kind of where my, my passion is, is we need to fix this problem and we need to advocate and we need to get you know, resources of our society behind some of these initiatives. So if there's any way I can help in that, you know, I would love to. And, and I think that, you know, my, my NIH-funded work in Ghana, uh, and I'm sure others have, you know, collaborations and funded initiatives, but maybe some of these could be used as a pointer where we can, you know, 
partner or augment some of that work at the society level to then improve uh, you know, our presence in, 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 in the continent. Then this last point I will say is that there's also beginning to be a lot of funding from the World Bank, you know, from WHO to address uh, some of these neglected diseases. Uh, so I particularly am on the workforce, the NIH workforce for rheumatic heart disease. And we are currently now looking at funding gaps for funding some of these, you know, whether it's TB, whether it's rheumatic heart disease. And this is again where I think the societies, you know, bringing the, uh, you know, the, the weight of the societies behind could really make a big difference here. So what advice would you have for, you know, you know, not only just junior faculty who are looking for a research avenue, but even uh, young trainees, medical students, general surgery residents, cardiac surgery residents and fellows. It seems like global health and not just, you know, there's the term global tourism or medical tourism, where we think we're doing global health by going into a, a, a country, a partner country, but there's nothing sustainable that's generated. There, there seems to be an untapped opportunity for research collaboration that's sustainable and results in all the things that we usually measure as success. And that's improvement of patient lives, academic product, and funding uh, generation. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. So, I mean, I've, a lot of medical students and residents actually have reached out and said, you know, I'm interested in global surgery. I'm interested in doing work, sustainable work. I'm not interested in going to spend one or two weeks and then coming back. How do we do that? And what is the mechanism for us to do something more substantial and uh, more long lasting? And what I would say is that I think there are some academic programs within the, within a, you know, that are beginning to establish global surgery initiatives within their departments. I think we need more of that. I think faculty chairs should perhaps explore maybe partnering with a global health portion of the institution and creating, you know, these kind of programs. It may start small as maybe a journal club kind of thing, or maybe one research project here and there, but hopefully you can expand it into creating an actual global health program. I would say there's a lot of funding that could be channeled towards that, like NIH funding or World Bank funding, if you create the platform for doing that. And then secondly, for our collaborative partners in whether it's in Africa or South, you know, South America or Southeast East Asia, I think many of them also see medical tourism in the negative light, meaning that you come, you want to come and spend two, two weeks or three weeks operating and then leaving the patients that you've operated on uh, without any follow-up and without, or sometimes they go and do complex operations. You know, you go and put a mechanical heart valve in a patient that cannot afford comadine and does not have any diagnostic in lab, you know, within 50 kilometers of, their, of where they live. So there are certain cultural norms that are not respected or not taken care, I mean, accounted for. And so sometimes I think in trying to do good in terms of trying to help, you may end up actually 
leaving a, a sour taste in people's mouth. So for that reason, I think, you know, if you want to do global centric work, I think it needs to be well thought out, find out who are the, the, the folks who are doing work in that space, perhaps write a paper, collaborate on that, maybe make one trip, learn about the place where you want to go and do your research, come back, and then, you know, it's a work in progress. Great. You know, your thought processes in global health are very nuanced and, and granular. And your journey as a foreign medical graduate is sort of that almost Horatio Algiers type story of, of success. You know, as a program director, you talked about uh, Dr. Lillimo giving you a chance and approving your position in the residency program there. Why should program directors in the United States consider foreign medical graduates for their programs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, there, there, there are smart and good people everywhere in the world. And sometimes it's just that opportunity that you need. You know, many of our great surgeons or great, not just in surgery, but in other specialties have come from diverse backgrounds. They've been women, they've been minorities, or they've been immigrants. And excellence comes in different forms, right? So the fact that I, you know, I, you know, someone is not from your, your part of the world or doesn't look like you does not mean in any way that they are, they are less capable. Uh, it's all about opportunity. If you give someone the opportunity and you mentor them, I think they can be as good as who they want to be. So I will say to most program directors, and it's, it's very common when you are applying for residence, and I know there are many immigrants, uh, medical students right now, getting ready to apply for the match. And, you know, I remember in my time, I think I may have sent about 200 applications, right? To just wait for that one or two interviews. So I was, you know, really hope that program directors, you know, make conscious efforts to at least consider one or two immigrant applications as part of their consideration for a categorical, categorical position. Too often we, we look at the immigrant pile as if they are good enough, well, maybe we'll give them a preliminary spot and not give them the opportunity to get into a categorical spot. And I think we should pay a bit more attention to be more intentional, I think, in, um, because there are some very, very talented immigrants that I've come across whom any day I think will make outstanding surgeons, but may not have been given that opportunity. Very well said, and, and, and I think it, it also highlights the different cognitive perspective that folks from abroad, different training paradigms brings to the table, different tools in the toolbox. So I, I asked this of, of everyone who's on this podcast, and um, so far everyone has answered. No one's, no one's abstained or uh, giving me the Heisman and ducked the question. So what do you see as the future of cardiothoracic surgery? Where are we going as a specialty? Yeah, I think you have to think about this question because many things are changing. I remember when I finished my cardiac surgery training, and I don't think I mentioned that to you, but I did do a, I take a year and I spent a year doing interventional, a whole year to do to learn wire and catheter skills. And that was very early in the days of transcarditor valves. And in my mind, it was 
10 years before, where, now it's standard of care, but it, this was 10, 12 years ago. And, and at that time, I felt the field was changing. You needed to acquire other skill set. Likewise, I think if we look back the next 10 years, I think the field is going to keep evolving. We're going to see more minimal invasive approaches to doing surgery, robotics, leveraging simulation in our training, bringing a lot of imaging, image-guided tools in, in what we do. We're going to have to learn about data science, artificial intelligence. We're also going to need to use tools like 3D printing into our, into our toolbox. So there's going to be, I think, a multifaceted approach to the specialty. And so newer or upcoming cardiac surgery residents should, I think, keep an open mind as to where, you know, this field is, is headed. And we will see a lot of sub-specialization too. I don't think there's going to be the good old cardiac surgery that does everything. I mean, things have become so complex now and highly specialized that you're going to have to sub-specialize and, and figure out early where you want to to, to subspecialize. So that, that'll be my, my, maybe the next 10 years, I think that's probably where we're going to be headed. Well, Jacques, you illustrate an exciting future for our specialty and you demonstrate an exciting present for our specialty. Thank you for all that you've done in global health and for our workforce for diversity and inclusion. And I'm excited to see the results of your NIH grant. And, and see how that will improve the health of our patients and our, our community partners. Well, thanks, David. It's definitely been a pleasure and an honor to, to be on this podcast. And, and I hope that if anything at all, uh, it will serve as a word of encouragement to, to the young and upcoming medical students and, and residents and surgeons who want to get into this exciting field of cardiac surgery. So thanks again. And it's been an honor. Thank you. So Dr. Jacques Podudu on our episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.